welcome back. It's episode 134 of the Hoover Institution's Law Talk podcast, coming to you, as we always do, from the faculty lounge of the Epstein U School of Law, where we've been requiring masks and gloves for years because of John's habit of handling polonium in the classroom. I'm your host, Troy Senek, former White House speechwriter and one-time Neil Sadaka hype man, and I am joined as always, by the Oprah and Gale of the conservative legal movement, they are Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, Lawrence A. Tisch, Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago, and John Yu, Visiting Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, and former Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Bush administration. Fellas, how are we doing? How is the quarantine hair holding up? I have to say I have engaged in prohibition-era tactics and managed to get two haircuts <laughs> since the lockdown, and I am now open for business. I'm happy to arrange any individual one-on-one -on -one haircuts, readings, purchases of retail goods, anything I can get away with behind a closed door. That's what's happening in California. I, I'm, I wish I could go work on the, <laughs> uh, down in Fremont with Elon Musk at the Tesla factory and get arrested. <laughs> Richard, how about you? Have you just resolved on a, on a scruffy quarantine or how are things looking over there on the other side of the Hudson from me? Well, I would say, given the fact that we have Governor Cuomo who shut everything down, which he should have left open, uh, it has been reasonably well. The real crisis on haircuts doesn't come with me. It comes with my wife. And in fact, um, I do regard this as an important affair of state. And I think that she's not alone <laughs> on these particular issues. But it does show just as how mindlessly interventionist all of this stuff is, uh, because what happens is things are getting better in New York, not so much because of the governor and the mayor who've done many things wrong, but the rates seem to be going down and the percentage of people in Central Park in a nice warm day who are wearing the mask has started to increase. And I regard those things as positively dangerous when you're dealing with open air situations. You want fresh air in your lungs. The last thing you want to do is to breathe in your own exhale because you actually have something wrong with you. It's going to get into your eyes and into your nose and into your mouth. And so unless you really have some dangers to others, I think one wants to keep these off. But this has essentially been, I think, the crisis of this situation. Uh, we will postpone this disaster until it becomes a full-scale nightmare. The Epsteins, thank you, have done pretty well. I'm in a kind of a job, as is John and all of you, in which uh, it turns out that if you're doing writing and talking and teaching, uh, you don't have to have customers in the same place as you always did. So we can operate at, say, 75 to 80 percent. People who are in the brokerage business, the hotel business, the transportation business, the retail business the manufacturing business, the ordinary hospital business, they are being hit extremely hard. And I think it's going to turn out to be a great tragedy. And I hope very much uh, that the biggest problem that ever comes out of this current situation is my wife's inability to get a decent haircut. <laughs> I am right now at an inflection point where I'm either going to go the sort of post-apocalyptic buzz cut route or I'm just going to ride this out until I get the full John Calhoun going. Like, that's a look that we need to bring back. Um, all right. Always, you would have looked great as a Civil War reenactor. What are you talking about? <laughs> I, I, think, I think Richard and I would send you across the field and Pickett's charge first in line. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that, John. <laughs> um, all right. So let's let's start with the—we'll start with the Michael Flynn story, actually. So, so last week, 
the Justice Department announces that it's it's dropping its cases against Flynn, the former national security advisor. This after Bill Barr, the attorney general, had deputized another U.S. attorney, Jeffrey Jensen, to examine the case in the FBI's conduct in the middle of it. And John, the characterization of this that we've seen in the media overwhelmingly is that this is simply a matter of the Trump administration taking care of its own. No, no less than Barack Obama said, uh, right as this was happening, this is the quote, this is the kind of stuff where you begin to get worried that basic, not just institutional norms, but our basic understanding of rule of law is at risk, close quote. Is that your reading of it, John? No, I think quite the opposite, actually. Uh, and we should we should notice that when uh, President Obama made his comments, he said that uh, Flynn had gotten scot-free, had run scot-free from a charge of perjury, uh, meaning that uh, President Obama got the actual crime charged wrong. He wasn't, Flynn wasn't charged with perjury. And, you know, Flynn is not exactly got away scot-free. I mean, he's been financially ruined and he's been living basically uh, under the sword of Damocles for the last two, two and a half years. This is why I think it's not an attack on the rule of law, but exact opposite is, uh, you know, the job of the FBI and the federal government is not, around, not to run around the country trying to catch everybody in a lie. I mean, think about it. If they just had to do that inside Washington, D.C., they'd need a police force 100 times larger than they've got right now. You know, their job is to investigate uh, crimes and conduct counter espionage, counterterrorism operations. And if you lie in the course of that, then you should be charged with lying to an FBI official. And this is the big problem. Neither of those two underlying substantive uh, investigations were valid. Uh, there was no real counter espionage operation going against Flynn by the time he became national security advisor. In fact, this is one of the, one of the many amazing things that came out in last week's document dump was that the FBI team investigating Flynn had decided by the end of December 2016 to close the case. They said there was no evidence showing that Flynn was in cahoots or colluding with the Russians. So that's out. Then is there any crime that Flynn might have committed? I don't see any crime that he could be guilty of. So he's already at the time. You remember, he's accused of lying about whether he discussed sanctions with the Russian ambassador, a guy named Sergei Kislyak, in December 2016. Flynn is already an official in the transition. He's a government official. He's allowed. In fact, this is what he's supposed to do is to talk to ambassadors right. about this. It's not a crime. It's the exact opposite of a crime to discuss this, to discuss these matters with foreign officials. And you look at what the FBI agents who actually conducted the investigation said. They actually didn't think Flynn lied about it. He, they, 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 he said he wasn't clear, might I remember. He didn't even know uh, that he was really being targeted for investigation. As National Security Advisor, it's his job to meet with the FBI on a regular basis. They kind of tricked him into thinking this was just a normal part of his job, and then they used what they got from him to try to catch him in a lie. But that's the most important is there was no lie that was connected to anything material to an investigation. So I think the Justice Department did the right thing and dropped the case. And then the second thing, the thing about the rule of law that actually does worry me is the second bombshell in the document dropped from last week was that there was apparently this meeting 
in early January 2017. I, I just couldn't believe this when I saw this. But not just between Jim Comey, who was pushing to prosecute Flynn under something called the Logan Act, but also Sally Yates, Attorney General, but President Obama. And President Obama not only was in the meeting, but he appeared fully familiar with all the facts of Flynn and the phone call and appears to have discussed it already with Comey. That really is shocking, I think, because that drags the president himself, President Obama himself, into claims of carrying out a prosecution of the officials of the opposition political party during election season and then transition. I, I could I could not believe it when I saw that account. Uh, that's really, you know, that's that's when you're starting to approach sort of Watergate type activity. Jeepers. John, you're one tough guy. <laughs> Let me sort of give my reaction. One of the things I always do is I first read the denunciations, and then I actually went back and I read the report. And there's a kind of a test that you always use to figure out whether or not uh, one side or another has the stronger case. If you looked at the denunciations, and I looked at one on Ben Wittes's lawfare site and a very hyperbolic article written in the New York Times uh, by, I think, Nikatiel, uh, and what happens is they are basically denouncing the rule of law at the highest level of generality, announcing the terrible motives, all the other stuff that is going on. And so the first thing you want to ask is, uh, did they actually respond to any of the particulars that were done in the papers that were submitted? And so it's not too difficult to track them down. And I did track them down and looked at them. And it turns out there's a huge amount of chapter and verse studies in there, which may be answerable, but were not answered by the things that had happened on the other side. Uh, John mentioned, for example, the Logan Act as a possible source of liability. Uh, we all know who George is. That is George Logan. He was somebody who apparently had talked to somebody overseas in the Adams administration. And a year after the adoption of the Alien and Sedition Act, they passed the, uh, the Logan Act after him to make sure that you couldn't have any discourse with a foreign person if you were not an official. Uh, it has never been enforced. Uh, people like Jimmy Carter would be in jail for a lifetime after 1981, given their constant shuttle diplomacy back and forth. John Kerry has the same kinds of behaviors. I think in some cases those people are actually nettlesome, but I don't think their behavior should be regarded as anything remotely criminal. And then it turns out that when Flynn, who is actually an official, wants to speak to his opposite numbers, this is now the potential source. So this is clearly a situation where you're trying to dredge up an offense. Uh, the question then is why. The uh, best explanation that I've seen does not reflect well on the Obama administration, uh, which is that Flynn is a man who knows enough about all of this stuff that if he were in power, what he could do is undo. And remember, this is early 2017, that he can undo all the efforts of concealment that were made by Comey and his team, McCabe and by Strauss and by Lisa Page and so forth, and expose them to serious kinds of repercussions, both in terms of reputation and maybe even in terms of criminal sanctions. And so keeping him out of that office now that Trump has been elected becomes a high priority. So when you start seeing bad motives, uh, then what you really want to do is to see whether or not there's some really strong independent evidence. And we know that uh, in this particular case, in an effort to continue their warrants against various people, including Carter Page, uh, what they did is they relied on the Steele report as an essential component of what was going on. Uh, there has been a large dispute later on 
uh, that had taken place in which Darren Nunes um, essentially said, or Darren Nunes, he said, look, um, all this stuff is completely baseless, and they laughed him out. Adam Schiff wrote something saying it was fully justified. He turned out to be wrong. And so what you see here now is the guys who got it right are the people who are being rebuked for getting it wrong. Um, what you really want in cases like this is that people who are basically making charges like this understand the importance of giving a bill of particulars. And that seems to me to be uh, sorely lacking. My view is if they could come up with stuff that seems to be a bit more persuasive, um, one would have to listen to it. Uh, the fact that they haven't come up with it thus far strikes me as being wrong. What I urge them to do in the column I wrote on this in the Hoover paper, in the Hoover, on the Hoover side, was to say, you submit a statement to uh, Judge Emmett Sullivan, I believe it is, and you tell him why it is that he ought to reject this particular motion. Because remember, there's not the power of the attorney general to dismiss this case with prejudice. He has to get the approval of the court to do so. John, correct me if I'm wrong. I think it's within his power at this particular point to have non-prosecution, whatever that means after the guilty plea. I don't think that um, he could release him from prison or remove the fine. And so I think, in effect, that it's a little bit ambiguous what it means to do all of this without prejudice, even though presumably something could happen. So uh, your great astute mind on criminal procedures should enlighten both me and our audience. Well, the most important point is that Flynn can never be prosecuted for this again. Uh, you know, the, the worry the worry you would have if you were Flynn or even Barr, I suppose, is that you could do all this and then Biden wins the election and then just retries, <laughs> you know, retries Flynn because double jeopardy won't apply because otherwise because Flynn really never went to trial. There was never a verdict in his case. Would it not apply even if it turns out that there's been a plea? Well, the, if, oh no! If, there, if there, he actually did reach a plea that once entered into court, then there would be double jeopardy. But I think what's happened, right? If suppose you, the Justice Department dropped the charges, and there's and the plea's withdrawn, but it's not without prejudice, then, then he could, he could, could be retried. He could be reprosecuted. Yeah. Yeah. And what's the chance of that happening under a Biden administration? What? Ninety-nine point nine. I didn't know you were that good at math, Richard. <laughs> well, I the, the number of desk places to the right of the decimal points are infinite, right? <laughs> and, and and so what we could do is get this as close to one as you want without saying that there's no chance at all for the other. Uh, uh, let, let me let me ask you <laughs> one last question on this before we move on. Uh, start with you, John. I mean, part of the revelation here was that this investment investigation, which got handed over to Mueller's team once he was appointed. Um, as you mentioned earlier, th these documents show that they failed in their legal duty to turn over any exculpatory evidence that they may have had, namely in this case, that they didn't think that Flynn had committed an underlying crime. And it's just interesting as we think about this, we talked about the issues with the FBI and the use of FISA on the last show. The further we get away from the Mueller probe, the more we seem to be hearing things of this sort about this investigation that was supposed to be the, the last hope for the impartial pursuit of the rule of law you know, in America, with the luxury of a little more distance now, how should we be judging the legacy of the Mueller investigation? I still think the Mueller report did uh, the nation a great service and that it, it settled once and for all, I think, whether there really was any kind of conspiracy between Russia and Trump. Its great virtue is that Yes, it went over the line. It was very aggressive. They pursued uh, some aggressive theories. They wrote a very hostile report. But in the end, they cleared Trump. I mean, you, no one no one would believe anyone else 
who had cleared Trump other than uh, Mueller. So I think it's done the nation a service, and I think, in pretty much settling that question. And, of course, as we saw when the Democrats went to impeach Trump, they didn't impeach him on these grounds. Uh, but you're seeing the collateral damage, as you, as you suggest, Troy. Some of the collateral damage are people like Manafort, like Stone, like Flynn. In the normal course of things, the Justice Department probably wouldn't have wasted the resources to go after these guys, or they might have given them fines or some kind of uh, you know, light plea. People are not often prosecuted for failing to keep up with the Foreign Agents Res you know, Registration Act. I think most people never heard of that law before two years ago. But, you know, on the other hand, I fault Flynn a little bit, too, because I don't think Flynn should have pled. I mean, given that we now know, Flynn, I think, should have gone to trial. I think part of the reason why this was such a fiasco was contributed not just by the Obama administration. They, I think they bear the primary blame. But Flynn, I think, was—it looks like he didn't lie. And it looks like—I mean, there's still ongoing questions about—there doesn't appear to be a document that the government can produce that records Flynn's actual interview. This is—I think that's incredible, too. Uh, there are a lot of problems with it. Flynn, I think, should have gone to trial. The fact that he pled was a mistake. I think he was um, ill-served by his lawyers in their initial advice. And the new lawyer, Sidney Powell, um, she's really been doing a, an amazing job for Flynn. She's the one who's brought this all to light. When most people in the criminal defense bar thought Flynn no longer had a chance. Look, I mean, I, I take a somewhat different view. Um, I one of my research assistants said that Flynn spent around four and a half million dollars defending himself. It also turned out that there was now the possibility that his son would be dragged into this. And even if the investigation were groundless and he were fully cleared, uh, that would be an immense amount of additional damages and money and so forth. I think the man was utterly exhausted. Uh, what I think about a prosecutor is that they have what I like to call monopoly power in the sense that they can choose to deal with you and you can not choose to deal with them and saying, I'd like to have a little more competition in this market. Um, in fact, multiple prosecutors with monopoly power get you into a lot of these tag team games that are even worse when there's only a single prosecutor. And I think, in effect, what you have to do is to have a series of very strong collateral restraints on what moves prosecutors can make. And so my view is that the entire Mueller team should be subject to sanctions if, in fact, they made the charges with respect to the son with the sole motivation of trying to force him to capitulate on this plea. And I think that they should be removed from the case. I think also, for example, that Strotz was involved in this case early on, and then he was taken off. That, to me, is not a sufficient response to uh, obvious risk of wrongdoing. If you think somebody is not fit to be on a particular case, you then must also think that any of the evidence that he collected at any particular time in any particular way cannot be used. One of the two people who interviewed Flynn, I gather, was Struts, at least that was said in the uh, report that the administration yes, did. Yes, that's right. And, you know, that's unbelievable. Then, of course, you know, David Richland, I guess, the Columbia professor who releases this information, he worked with Comey. Comey passed the information on to him in order to get an independent voice to call for the federal prosecutor. I regard that as, again, completely improper behavior, uh, which ought to lead one to stop it. So um, I think, you're, John, you're right to say that with the exoneration such as it was in this particular case would have no power if it came from somebody who was thought to be a Trump confederate. But I think 
the serious kinds of misconduct of Mueller and his team, dragging this thing out for 674 days, having no viable theory, being really very dicey even on the obstruction issue and all the rest of that stuff. What it did is, in effect, it, they wrote an opinion which exonerated him legally in an effort to try to trap him politically. And I thought Barr was correct when he said, your job is just to make a recommendation to me whether I prosecute or not prosecute. Your job is not to say, hey, this interesting is really interesting. Maybe Congress ought to take it up in one form or another. So uh, the effort to embroil other institutions in this then leads to the impeachment hearing. And the tragedy is uh, basically refusing to yield to a congressional subpoena before you can challenge it in court is now an impeachable offense, uh, which clearly comes out of the obstruction mentality that was created um, in the Mueller thing. I regard the whole thing as a long-term national disgrace. I mean, I still have my same position with Trump. I cannot believe that he's president of the United States. I would love him to resign, but I think it would be absolutely immoral under these circumstances to engage in what I regard as very much kangaroo court-type operations in order to charge him with things that he has not done. And it seems pretty clear uh, that it has happened that way. So I think, in effect, that what it has done, it has created a climate of indignation on the part of the very strong left-wing forces there that lead them to write the kind of abusive things about the Flynn situation, uh, which I think are not justified on the particular facts. Um, it's really sad. Flynn, I guess he did lie in some sense to Pence, and he was let go. Man loses his job, loses a fortune. Um, I think, in effect, this is a classic case of overkill, which only a bottomless pit federal prosecutor can impose, and you really have to find a way to make sure that these people do not use illicit moves here any more than they do with respect to withholding Brady evidence or any more than they do with respect to deferred prosecution agreements, all of which essentially can clearly involve abuses of monopoly power for which there are inadequate uh, defenses on the other side. I'm perfectly happy to uh, basically convict the guilty. I'm not happy to see these abusive processes used, which in many cases nail the innocent. All right, let's switch cabinet departments for a moment and go over to education, where Betsy DeVos just last week announced the department's finalized Title IX rules for handling sexual misconduct allegations in higher ed. Uh, our listeners will probably remember a lot of the agita over this goes back to the Dear Colleague letter that was issued by the Obama administration, which put a real thumb on the scale in, in favor of the accusers in these cases. So they called for using preponderance of the evidence as the standard of proof rather than beyond a reasonable doubt. It allowed the accusers to appeal a verdict, but not the accused. And it also strongly discouraged, almost to the point of preventing the, the use of uh, cross-investigations against the accusers. Um, now, before cross-examination, excuse me, yeah. uh, before we even get into what's happening now, can we just put that original policy in context? I mean, Richard, our listeners can be forgiven if they don't remember a schoolhouse rock song about dear colleague letters. <laughs> where where does this come from? What was the legal authority involved? Well, what happens is you have to enforce the Civil Rights Act, and this involves both employment situations and education cases. This was the education side of this. And the question was, what procedures do you have to do to deal with charges of sexual harassment or other forms of misconduct? And the standard practice 
universes inside universities was to sort of treat these things as a cross between a civil and a criminal proceeding, uh, which meant that you had to have some particularity of the charges and to give notice, and you had to give people a burden of proof which was higher than uh, preponderance of the evidence, but lower than beyond a reasonable doubt, usually carried with it the chance to give cross-examination, uh, to prevent independent witnesses, present independent witnesses, and so to have appeals. And what the Obama situation did was to reverse the situation so that once you're charged in these kinds of cases, you're guilty unless you can be proved innocent. And what has happened, even after they removed the Guardian, there were many universities, Stanford, for instance, and said, we like the Obama rules and we will continue to use them internally. They are faced with very serious constitutional challenges if they're public institutions and other contractual challenges if they're not, which I think are fully justified. Uh, so what happened is I thought that the uh, effort to return to the pre-2011 rule was pretty much the correct situation, and it was very sensitive uh, to the kinds of abuses that took place. I cannot at this point reveal anything from even the institutions or the people involved, but uh, in the earlier period, I was actually involved as a kind of a helping non-hired attorney for several people involved in these cases, and the word that came to my mind about the way in which the proceedings went was that they were straight Kafkaesque in terms of everything that they did, not just this stuff, but sort of small things like scheduling a hearing on somebody's birthday and so forth, and essentially making it impossible for them to get any resources help within the university. Uh, I, I was appalled at, at what I saw happen, and it seems to me that you can just go much too much further. Uh, one of the issues that became very acute to me in, in one of these cases had to do with following. There was a panel discussion at, the, I think it was the University of Chicago, uh, but somewhere else, in which the question was whether or not you want the situation to be the uh, preponderance of evidence on the grounds that the disappointed accuser who does not get redress in her particular case suffers every much as the disappointed accused who in fact is falsely committed. I thought that this was a crazy situation, and here's why. Uh, the uh, disappointed accuser goes back to her life, just as she did. If you turn out to be accused, what happens is you face all sorts of heavy sanctions inside the university, and these often dovetail. So one of the things that was told to me about all of these cases is that if you are a foreign student and you're subject to these things, it may well lift your visa, at which point you could suffer deportation on the strength of very dubious stuff, and at the very least have to hire an immigration lawyer to figure out how you can slow this particular train um, down. And so I think the asymmetry on these cases are absolutely profound and that the traditional law did this. If you have a serial offender and he gets off on one particular case, there'll be another case that will be coming after him. If he's convicted on an innocent situation, there's going to be no subsequent case that's going to undo that particular damage, which is yet another reason to understand why the asymmetries apply. Uh, the Obama administration on this stuff I thought was vindictive. The kinds of results that happen, for example, if one goes through, uh, not at the university, University level under this, but uh, all of the stuff having to do with uh, the, the uh, sex change operations and children and so forth, where they fit, uh, the whole state of North Carolina was held up because they simply did not allow institutions to have reasonable accommodations uh, when they started to force very, very strong sanctions against uh, institutions to require them to uh, deal with sex change operations or sex reassignment therapies, but people have yet to have them, um, as though the only thing that happened was the willingness to defend transsexual students under the Civil Rights Act. 
caring not at all about the hundreds of other people who feel seriously dislocated. I regarded those things as serious kinds of abuse. Um, I know that Mr. Biden has announced that he will return that particular rule. I think that's just one of many acts that he has done, which indicates his serious misjudgment on really important matters. John, I'd note that one of the weirder aspects of the new regulations is that, at least by conservative standards, is that it doesn't eliminate the preponderance of the evidence standard. It just gives schools the ability to choose between it and the beyond a reasonable doubt standard, which you and I both know that, as Richard said, on an awful lot of American college campuses, that's going to be a three-second discussion. But here's here's my sort of bigger question for you. One, I have never been able to fully get my head around as a non-lawyer. One could understand the propriety of the school handling complaints that are, are essentially campus business, I mean, low-level things, like somebody just sort of making themselves a nuisance. But when you cross into sexual assault and areas like that, why aren't these cases just handled in the courts? I, I actually served in, I think, uh, about 25, 20 years ago as a hearing officer in uh, one of these disciplinary cases. And so uh, I can explain why. I don't agree with it myself. I mean, I, I agree with what you're suggesting, Troy, is that if if something occurs on campus that's criminal in nature, then it should just be referred to the police and to detectives and to the prosecutors. Uh, the fact that a crime occurs on a college campus shouldn't entitle it to some kind of alternate proceeding. But I'll give you, uh, I, I think, part of the reason why schools do this. They have this kind of, we could call it an administrative justice system, uh, much like the kind that uh, federal agencies have before you get the right to go to court, is that uh, universities think that there's a certain kind of atmosphere of uh, trust and informality on college campuses that allow for the sharing of ideas, and that if you were to turn everything on college campuses into uh, just sort of a mirror of the normal world, you would lose something of that kind of uh, a free discussion, openness, collaboration, and so on that could only take place within a university environment. Now, personally, I don't agree with that. I I, I, I tell you what you're saying, Troy. Like, for example, if a student cheats on an exam, which is a serious thing, um, that I think should is not something that has to go to the police. I think there should be some kind of confidential internal system to handle that. But yeah, if you're talking about physical assault and sexual assault, I think then it doesn't make sense to have a kind of administrative process. Just like, let me add, exists in the uh, world of administrative agencies. So generally, you know, if you have a communications issue under federal law, you go to FCC, or if you have some kind of fair, you know, some kind of a consumer problem, you go to the CFT first. But if it's criminal, that doesn't go to an agency. That's handled by prosecutors and police. And I think that's the same system out of playing college campuses. So, uh, you know, even though liberals are, gonna, are attacking DeVos up and down, actually what she's proposing is actually a compromise when you look at the bigger picture. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's the shortest response I've ever heard from you, Richard. Are you, Richard, okay? are you, Richard, you don't need to say hair. anything else. You don't need no, to say I, I, I can say, yeah, but, but I don't want to do that. I mean, look, there's a kind of a funny situation here, which is you can go into the criminal series system. What you do is you get a really high stake games with really horrible situations, or you can go into a university situations where the sanctions are weaker and the standards are proof. And so to some extent, it's a kind of a hard trade-off. Do you want to risk the higher chance of 
getting a conviction but with small sanctions, or do you want to have the small chance of being convicted uh, where you have this thing on the other side? And what happens is, well, this depends upon the relative cost of what's going on. And in many of these cases, when you see these situ sexual harassment situations, um, it could be the end of your education at any level. You get expelled from one particular school and it's done for this particular reason. Where are you going to go thereafter? Uh, so what's happened is I think more and more people have started to gravitate to the side that John won. And, and I think, in effect, if there's going to be an election on these cases, it should not be with the institution. It should be with the individual. Um, he says, look, if you want to charge me with a criminal charge, you've got to go the whole way. Um, but in these cases, if I'm willing to give to a lesser situation, we could kind of settle and inform one. But I think giving that option to the government, or in this particular case to the university, is probably too dangerous. Okay, I'll move you guys over to the legislative branch now, because there, there's been a big fight going on on Capitol Hill over what the next round of COVID aid is going to look like. And one of the things that Republicans and the president are pushing for is liability protections for business. The idea here being that if you're a retailer or a manufacturer or a healthcare facility, I mean, any number of institutions, you're going to be much more hesitant to open back up if you think that employees or customers that are going to come through your facility are going to be able to file a lawsuit if they contract the disease on your property or, or claim they do anyway. Part of the difficulty here is figuring out where exactly you came into contact with the disease. But, Richard, the point around which the counter-argument seems to be coalescing is that this is a license for firms to be remorseless in the way that they treat their employees. And so people point to an Amazon or they point to these meat processing companies and they say, look, these big impersonal businesses are just going to use this as a shield to treat these employees like cannon fodder if we don't protect them. What's your response to that? I think that's the same misguided view of employment relationships that moves the progressive spirit in every case. Um, you have contracts at will, and do you see people acting arbitrarily? No, what you have to do is to hire and to retain authors. There was a nice piece this morning in the Wall Street Journal about Amazon. And, you know, it gets itself maybe into 10 difficult cases when it's hiring 100-odd thousand people. Uh, this is an incredibly high record. Uh, it turns out to attract them that they have to wage wages, they have to change working conditions, they have to do a lot of things. There's this view, essentially, that employers have domination powers up and down the line, which I think is just simply false. And when it comes to customers, it's the same thing. You've got to be able to attract them. So one of the reasons why I was so opposed to the mandatory lockdown under these circumstances was if you lock this stuff down, then it turns out there's a single figure, a governor in one particular state, who has life and death over everybody. If you decentralize this, what would happen is those firms that could open up more sensibly would do so. Uh, they would adapt various kinds of practices to law and customers and employees. It would not be a full-scale business, uh, but it, at least it would start now. In effect, it's all discontinuous. So Mr. Fauci, whom I have very low regard for in general, announces, well, we may have to slow this thing down. And the stock market goes down 500 points almost in response to his kind of announcement. Uh, I think, in effect, the situation is even worse uh, this because I don't believe that if you put up a sign with your employees or with your customers saying, uh, come here only on circumstances that we will not be liable regardless, that that will stand up in the courts like in California and other liberal and even in most conservative jurisdictions. So what you really need to do is to have legislation, which essentially, and even this may not work, uh, basically gives you the uh, protection under these things because the, the simple contractual solution.
resolution will not work by way of waiver. And getting those things through the California legislature, through the United States Congress, given the House of Representatives, are really bad. So I think what is going to happen is that you are not going to be able to get what the Republicans have asked for, which I regard as a tragedy. And then what's going to happen is that the opening up is going to be much slower than was otherwise the case. And I think it must be understood that not opening up is a health risk, as cutting down is a health risk. And so the strategy I think you have to do is to say there are many people who've had elective surgeries, other kinds of chronic conditions that have gone untreated and untested. There's going to be a lot of residual deaths and huge medical expenses. Once we do open these things up, we have to do it. So the strategy, I think, should be not to worry about these endless tests for vaccine and for tests that never work. Uh, there are sort of evidence that a bunch of new treatments, including some things as mundane as vitamin D exposure, uh, might have a real difference. And what you try to do is to open things up at the same time that you clean up the high-risk facilities on the one hand, and you try to adopt sort of generalized cheap therapies on the other hand, which will either avoid or minimize this stuff. But the way in which I've come to view this stuff as a descriptive matter, I think that we are heading into a true disaster. Waiver is one of these issues. All we have to do is to think that this stuff doesn't get this untangled until September. And then we have the ordinary flu season on top of whatever it is that's left of the uh, COVID-19 season. And we could be in this situation in a very, very long time. Uh, I cannot think of a more perverse way to handle this stuff uh, than the one that we've engaged in. And I think that the actual trends are getting worse. And I think most people who are in business now uh, think that opening up is going to be much harder to do than they thought even two or three weeks ago. To Richard's point, John, out where you are in California, there's been a big backlash in some places to the scope of the restrictions. So, for instance, you had you had all my people down in Orange County storming Huntington Beach. You've got uh, Elon Musk's one-man revolt, which you mentioned earlier. And then just today, a few hours before we recorded this, uh, word went out. It's not official yet, but this was said by the, the uh, regnant public health official there that Los Angeles County might be under lockdown for another three months. You are clearly reaching an inflection point in a lot of places where the tolerance for the lockdowns is, is waiting. I'm sure we'd probably be seeing more of it here in New York if it wasn't for the fact that the weather is still crappy in May. <laughs> is there, in your judgment, a, a way to thread the needle on this and give people a little more leeway without taking an inadvisable risks on the public health side? Well, one is just a matter of uh, government structure. I like the idea of different counties. There's a lot of counties. I think there's, what, 50 counties in California all being allowed to set their own policies. And, uh, you know, there's no reason why uh, that county up in the all the way up in the northeast part of the state that I think has like 2,000 people in it and has almost no cases, no deaths. It's up along, I think, the Nevada border why they should have any policy at all that's similar to the one that governs downtown Los Angeles and San Francisco. Let the different jurisdictions make their own decisions and suffer the costs or benefits, and they can compete. And if people don't you know, like the fact that uh, L.A. is going to shut down things and they can go down to your old homeland of Orange County and move and or go there and go to the businesses and restaurants that open up there. So I'd rather have it decided at the very at a very local uh, level, one. But uh, second, I think what's going to happen, what's happening is uh, two, there's civil disobedience is already going on. I was just walking down the one of the main shopping streets in Berkeley where you would think people love government power that restricts <laughs> economic activity, no more driving, barely any eating. 
<laughs> no business at all going on. And yet you see people just opening up businesses now. Uh, they're just not very public about it, but you can tell that there's business going on inside. I think, I think you're going to see that happen more and more. And look, there's only, there's not that many police officers in the state of California. There's no way for the police to really stop the people of California from opening up if they want to. And I think you're already seeing the changes by Governor Newsom in the order uh, as a result of the demonstration at Huntington Beach and other beaches. So that's uh, one thing. It's just I think just civil disobedience is going to start out. But second, I what I would do is make it, uh, I think you're seeing the courts are going to get involved because uh, churches were first, protests yeah. were next. Right. People with individual rights, with certain individual rights, are going to go to court and say, look, I can do what I want to do that's protected by the Constitution and still keep social distancing. You know, I can go to church and still keep six feet apart. I can protest in front of the Capitol and keep six feet apart. Courts, I think, are going to side on the part of the public and against the government on cases like that. And that's going to chip away at it, chip away at it. People are going to see how irrational it is to say you can't go to a restaurant, but you can you can swarm Costco. Look, I swarm Costco every time I think there's toilet paper there. Don't get me oh, wrong. You were, you were swarming Costco long before this happened. <laughs> I know. I already checked on it anyway. I already knew all the delivery schedules. But <laughs> I've got toilet paper and Clorox wipes for sale here for anybody who wants to buy any. Well, I'm, I'm all ready for the next appointment. The point is people are going to be struck by the irrationality of it, and they're going to refuse to follow these things. And I think the courts eventually are going to go along and force the government either to explain why these arbitrary distinctions are being made, or they're going to put pressure too, along with civil disobedience on the on the state government to lift these bans. Richard, Look, I have you... just, I, I've just looked at the the New York and the New Jersey numbers and the Georgia numbers. Um, they're steeply down. Georgia is down, notwithstanding opening. New York is probably, from its speak in terms of deaths, is down to about 25 to 30 percent of what it had. Uh, the reason why this thing gets so infuriating is the argument is essentially Essentially, well, it's down now, but there could always be a relapse tomorrow. So it turns out there's no state of affairs apart from the complete elimination of the disease that will persuade somebody like Cuomo uh, to move. And, and what happens is it's not only that I think he's utterly uninformed, uh, but the dictatorial nature of a single man making these kinds of judgments for the last two months, never calling the legislature into session for its points of view, never even revealing the sources of the judgments that he starts to make for other people to clear him. Uh, you see this thing getting better, and you say, well, why are we doing this stuff? As I look around, there are more people now wearing masks in Central Park than uh, three weeks ago, and it's clear that, A, the risk of any kind of infection when you're outside in the fresh air is relatively minimal, but you also see the numbers coming out from these things. So uh, it turns out that if you really are a doomsdayer, and the only thing you care about are COVID deaths, you don't care about deaths from any other source, there's never going to be a set of circumstances that is going to encourage an early opening. And I think uh, the consequences of having this thing go into the fall will be totally catastrophic. There's nothing the president can do. Uh, but uh, this is a situation where I think it's the state governors who have done this stuff that are dangerous. In California, it is positively bizarre, even though the cases are sort of a little bit higher. Uh, the death rate there is one of the lowest in the United States. And you don't have a New York subway system to spread this stuff. They should be opening up much more rapidly than they've done. And and uh, I, I literally I want to pull my hair out uh, because I think that the alarmists do not understand two kinds of errors. They don't know how to make trade-off. Uh, they have these really primitive dogmatic views 
when Governor Cuomo says, I put life first, my daddy told me to do that, I don't worry about the economy, what he's doing is making a colossal mistake of essentially assuming that the last benefit you get from a COVID restriction is worth more than the first release from any other economic situation. You're trying to run a world under uncertainty and you don't believe in trade-offs. You're always going to be wrong uh, automatically. If you do believe in trade-offs, you could still be wrong, but at least you have a chance of being right. But the New York state situation is really careening for very much for the worst. There's an interesting ancillary part of this, which has kind of gotten swallowed by the top line COVID stuff. The other aspect of the debate on Capitol Hill has been Democrats looking for more money to help out state and local governments. Uh, Mitch McConnell has been cold to that idea. And he's pointed out that whatever problems they're facing now, a lot of it is compounded by states that were in bad shape already because of their unfunded pension liabilities. Uh, and on a radio interview with Hugh Hewitt, McConnell said, I'm going to give you the quote, I would certainly be in favor of allowing states to use the bankruptcy route. It saves some cities and there's no good reason for it not to be available. And that has led to a bunch of subsequent debate about whether state bankruptcies are, are even permitted by the Constitution. So, Richard, what's your view on this, both that constitutional question and as a policy matter? Well, I mean, it's extremely difficult to figure out how you organize a bankruptcy of a sovereign who has to retain all of his powers. So just start with question number one. You're going to have a bankruptcy of the state, right? Well, you're going to have to have a bankruptcy trustee. What powers is this bankruptcy trustee going to have? Is he going to be entitled to order the police force around? Is he going to be entitled to collect taxes? Is he going to be entitled to enforce every single state law that we have uh, with respect to a variety of business? Can he enforce the anti-discrimination laws or not? Uh, which of these things could be waived? It just simply does not match what it is that you need. Uh, what you might be able to do is if you have some local funding authorities uh, that if they are sort of isolated, you may be able to take their revenues and their particular obligations and spin them off and try to handle it through a bankruptcy. But I think that that alternative is not there. The other real danger of this is right now we seem to believe uh, that if you just continue to print money, what you can do is essentially bail out the states by giving them the dollars to cover their losses. The difficulty about that is if you really believe printing money was the correct way to solve every problem, then you'd never bother with taxation. You just print more money in order to have the government discharge its obligations. But sooner or later, you're going to have more and more dollars chasing fewer and fewer real assets, and you're going to have a form of inflation that starts to set in. I don't know when that's going to come. It's tricky because the velocity of money is very low now since people are inspecting. So the increase in the quantity may not matter as much. But if you have this much money out there and all of a sudden economic activity starts to increase, you could see really very disruptive inflation. And the Fed has been basically pushing all sorts of things into the system. And so I think, in effect, that what happens is we, we're living as if there's no tomorrow on this. And then the, the final irony, my least favorite governor these days, Mr. Cuomo, uh, if you know, he desperately needed volunteers, he thought, to come into the state. It turns out the need was not nearly as large as he had thought at the particular time. Uh, in what was going on. And then they come in at great personal sacrifice. And then he says, well, you know, I really believe life becomes before finances. But by the way, I'm going to tax all these people on their New York income. Um, <laughs> right. I mean, I just, I mean, where does he, I mean, it's certainly it's so mean-spirited. Uh, is he going to allow them deductions for all their various expenses that they incurred? Is he going to recognize that if they earn very little money inside this state, that most of them are going to be in the zero tax bracket? Uh, he's not going to get much revenue. 
value out of this, but to sort of turn around on the one hand and say money really doesn't matter at all, and then to pull this kind of a cheap stunt with respect to taxation um, shows you what the situation is. Neither he nor the mayor in this city, de Blasio, have done anything to figure out how you pare down expenses to uh, cut the catastrophic loss in revenues, and I don't think that they do. Uh, if we remember the state and local tax issue that we had to face was an effort to stop the very high tax states from being subsidized by the very low tax states. And we're having exactly that same game play out here. And as a resident of three high tax, badly governed states that I do work in Illinois, in New York, and in California, I say principle matters first. And I think that they have to be encouraged to clean their own house. I don't think they should be allowed to do whatever form of self-indulgence they want and hope that you could cure the problem by increasing taxes at the national level. By the way, the new proposal put forth by the Democrats today for this next round does have the restoration of the, the SALT deductions in it. Um, all right. Yeah, well, uh, no surprise there. Yeah, that, I mean, they keep going back to this one because it's it's an interest of their donors, if nothing else. Uh, let's round out the hour with uh, some of the business that's going on at the Supreme Court, uh, starting with a unanimous decision written by Justice Kagan that threw out the convictions from the Bridgegate case in New Jersey that happened under Chris Christie's administration. Uh, John, court watchers will recall that the court did exactly the same thing, right down to the unanimous decision several years ago in the case of Bob McDonnell, the former governor of Virginia, who'd been convicted on corruption charges, all of which has led to councils of despair amongst good government types who are lamenting in the wake of this that corruption is starting to seem like an unpunishable crime. Now, now, surely that is not the kind of sentiment that's going to command unanimity on the Supreme Court. So can you walk us through what actually happened here? Yeah, well, it's, you know, as you said, this is a trend in the cases um, to respect federalism and the political process. Because uh, what's happened is that you basically have prosecutors turn what was really an anti-bribery statute. This is some kinds of honest services yes. uh, provision of the criminal law. And the basic idea behind the statute was right, to prevent bribery. That uh, suppose um, you know I'm a rich guy and I and I go to the governor and I just give him money and I say in exchange for the money, um, you know I don't want you to take regulatory action against my hospital. Um, you know, that's a hard, you know, what is the crime there? It's hard to prove because sometimes governors will say, well, I would have done it anyway. Um, you know, the guy's just giving money because he was my friend. So prosecutors, uh, they've been trying to develop this theory, which was that you could be guilty of bribery, not just for, uh, you know, and let me just complicate the fact. I suppose then uh, the governor just does something like that, doesn't prosecute some case, doesn't investigate someone. It's just because somebody's a friend and a political supporter didn't really give him anything, didn't give him any money or property or anything. So basically what the problem was for prosecutors is they were trying to figure out ways to get at these kind of quid pro quo uh, cases of bribery that didn't involve money, didn't involve property, only involved people doing favors or doing them the favor of not doing anything. Uh, but I think the Supreme Court rightly said yes. uh, that prosecutors had stretched this too far. Um, that, and it's interesting. They say, look, doing favors, doing quid pro quos in part is what politics is about. I mean, you, you're an interest group head. You go to see a senator. You've given money to the senator's campaign. You ask a senator for a favor. 
right? That's, you know, the Supreme Court, this must be said in the McDonald case, how is that, how can that be illegal? That is basically, a, you know, that's the mother's milk of politics, money. Uh, and so that's one problem. The second problem that prosecutors were facing and the court disagreed with them is that right, you've got a federalism problem here. <clears throat> how is it really the job of the federal government to go around the country and police whether state governments and local governments are corrupt or not. You know, Justice Kagan's opinion, it's, it's quite uh, clear on this, says, look, the answer for corruption is not always federal prosecution. It's really up to their state laws, state prosecutors, and there's the political process itself. And I think that's really the bigger message here is hopefully the federal government is withdrawing from this period of, uh, you know, over-aggressive federal uh, sort of management and superintendents of state governments and how they're working. And they're going to rely on states and their vo own voters to correct for corruption. I think that's the right outcome. This is actually, I think, a little bit trickier. On the first point, there is the question of what's the scope of honest services allegations and so forth. And I agree with John and I agree with Justice Kagan uh, that you do not want these notions to be spread so far uh, that virtually anybody who asks anything of anybody is now potentially engaged in criminal behavior. Whenever you have a definition that broad of criminal conduct, it always becomes a selection question as to which of these people you want to go after. Is it going to be Jeffrey Skilling or is it going to be somebody else? And that's a very, very bad way to do things. You want the narrowing to be done through the statute. You don't want the narrowing to be done through the political process, which introduces an element of favoritism and therefore an element of political imbalance into the system. The other point I think is trickier. I mean, one of the things that we've done in effect with our criminal law is we do have massive federal oversight of things that start to take place in the states. And a lot of the civil rights enforcement actions, particularly in the 50s and 60s, followed that model. We don't trust the states to be able to do these things correctly for whatever reason, including good old-fashioned racial uh, misconduct. And so we're coming in there. Now, if the federalism objection is the good one, then it's not just with non-service cases that it applies. Suppose it turns out there's just an outright bribe that happens, which is covered unambiguously by the statute. Do we want to repeal the statute in those circumstances to say that you only use the states? Or, for example, if you have a securities transaction in which there's some allegation of insider trading and it's illegal under state law, do we want to therefore say it should not be illegal under federal law, even when it turns out there's a federal market? Uh, so there is a kind of an intermediate position of federalism, which I don't think can be easily dismissed. And that's the position which says that the federal government doesn't get to set the rules that the state wants to use to govern itself. But when it comes to policing the breach of those particular rules, you could come in. And indeed, the whole structure of the Reconstruction Amendments, the Equal Protection Clause, and so forth, they're not anything that command the states as to what they do, but they are commands which say to the states that if you do something uh, and it turns out to violate the equal protection of the laws, then we will come in and we will start to intervene. So I'm a little bit less enthusiastic than John is about trying to do it in this particular fashion. I would, I think, all things being equal, prefer states to have relatively robust systems so that the feds don't want to intervene. I don't know how you make that into a constitutional standard of review. Uh, but I think, in effect, that if you take real hardline cases of admitted criminality and you're faced with a rather dubious state position, uh, having the federalism argument there 
when it comes to the enforcement of basic norms under state law is a bit chancier line to take. And so I would want to reserve judgment on that question, be more particularistic about it, and come to a, a sort of a conclusion almost statute by statute, case by case, rather than trying to do it at the general level of high theory. One other bit of sort of late breaking news. The day that we're recording this, the court heard the uh, oral arguments in the cases about the yeah, president's around. tax returns. Yeah. Uh, John, can you give us the, the run through of how that went? The initial coverage suggests that not well for the people who wanted to get the president's records. Yeah, it's interesting. The precedents, I think, the cases are all on the side of Congress. I don't uh, think so. No, oh, I do. But I, I think judging by the oral argument, uh, the Supreme Court is willing to be more flexible on this case than I would have thought. Uh, it sounds like uh, the House's lawyer, Doug Letter, who's a very good lawyer, is one of the. He was the chief appellate lawyer for the Justice Department in the circuit courts for a long time, but it sounds like he just. Uh, was not ready for the kinds of questions that the court asked him. And it sounds like Trump's lawyers, uh, personal lawyers, not the Justice Department here, was personal lawyers, did a really good job. Well, I have to say in the interest of full disclosure, I, I, I know them, but I, I was telling them I thought they were going to lose the whole time. Uh, so that's one thing on the – and then the other case – so there's two cases. That's the case of the House demanding Trump's tax returns. Hmm. There's a companion case of – uh, the state of New York, oh, yeah, uh, yeah Cy Vance, the DA from Manhattan, also seeking Trump's financial records for purposes of criminal investigation. And from the reports, this this was a case where I thought the precedents were on the president's side. The principles of federal supremacy while in office would be on, the, on Trump's side. But it sounds like an oral argument that the court's more sympathetic to that investigatory claim than it was for the House demand. So I, I, you know, I'm really struck by how the oral arguments, to me anyway, seemed 180 degrees away from the president. So let me just briefly explain what the issue was with the tax returns then. You know, this is a case of does Congress have a legitimate legislative purpose to subpoena certain records? Uh, in general, and this also applies to witnesses too, in general, the court's been very forgiving to the Congress when it subpoenas records. It's basically said that the legislative subpoenas are good as long as they cover any subject on which Congress could legislate. And so Congress is saying, look, we want to see Trump's tax returns because we want to, you know, make sure the tax code uh, treats the wealthy properly, that it treats people like Trump properly, that it um, there's no money laundering that's going on. We might need to pass amendments or reforms. To me, based on the way that the courts have examined legislative purpose before, uh, you know, where they've almost never, as far as I know, overturned a subpoena Maybe there's like one or two cases during the McCarthy period, but generally they've never overturned subpoenas because Congress didn't have a valid legislative purpose. And usually the courts say, we're not even going to get into that question. We're going to defer to Congress and assume it has good motives in mind. But here it sounds like the justices said that seems so limitless. It seems to have no limiting principle that we might draw the line here. That's not really, really surprised me. On the other hand, I don't see what Trump's real privacy right here is he's a public official. The tax return is in the hands of the government. He handed it in. I don't see, you know, he doesn't have any personal you know, privilege, executive privilege uh. or immunity because it's all about stuff he did before he was president. I, I would have thought the case was going to come out on the other side against Trump. But after hearing the reports of our argument, I think Trump might win. 
Well, I didn't hear the oral argument, but I did read the cases below, and I will disclose that you know I'm a close friend of Naomi Rao, and I thought she did a terrific job on the dissent side. And let me see if I could explain how I would look at this. Uh, the kinds of purposes that were put forward on these things um, uh, are directed towards him in a particular case, but it turns out that if you really want to see this for legislative, uh, whether or not the president may have engaged in illegal conduct before doing his surface, that's an issue for a prosecutor. And if it was going to be an issue for a prosecutor, you would have to defer while the president is in office. I think even with respect to crimes that are committed before, you could do things to preserve records and so forth, but you don't want to. Now, if in effect, what you say is, well, I'm going to figure out what we're going to do with respect to people who make high-risk investment or own tax shelters, and I'd just like to start with President Trump on this stuff. That seems to me to have a real sham quality associated with respect to its obligations. I just don't believe that. Uh, what I would require very simply before you had a valid legislative purpose, what you did is you collected information from other people, you formed some kind of a general policy, and then asked yourself whether or not the judgment that you made uh, would be altered about this by a simple factual assertion that the Trump papers were really bad or not bad. And I can't see how that stuff is relevant. So I thought this was the classic witch hunt, and I think that her dissent on this was exactly right, and I think the Supreme Court realizes uh, that you can't do this. Privacy rights for the president are not what the issue is. Everybody who submits a tax return is generally given this notion that the things are not going to be freely released, uh, that they are given in confidence to the government, and it takes something like a subpoena uh, to pry it out of them. Uh, because otherwise, what would happen is anytime you wanted to investigate somebody for tax fraud, instead of suing them, you just ask the government, and all the subpoena requirements that would normally require that you show some sort of evidence, probable cause, reasonable suspicion or whatever, would go by the wayside. When you get to the other case in the Cyrus Band situation, what these guys are doing, in effect, is they're trying to figure out whether or not, in connection with the uh, situation with Michael Cohen, uh, there was uh, some payment of hush money. And this is done in respect to Clinton, you know, campaign expenditures or something of the sort. My own view about that is I thought that Clinton and Jones was one of the great mistakes in American constitutional law. I do not think that any president should be subject to any criminal or civil prosecution while in office. I think that the distractions from office, the dangers of abuse, the silliness is great. Uh, when Justice Stevens says, don't worry, it's only a defamation, uh, a deposition, uh, Anybody who's ever been a lawyer who's been deposed or is representative witness knows depositions are in many cases much more dangerous than trials because they're much more free-flowing. And once you make a mistake, there's no way you could take it back. So my view is you suspend the statute of limitations, you order the preservation of documents and so forth, and you wait till the person's out of office before you begin. And I think that's exactly what should be done in this particular case as well. So I would essentially side with this and every other president on these kinds of issues. Separation of powers is extremely important. You're not going to have that if you're going to have a situation in which Congress can go after the president uh, without going to go through prosecution, which we don't want. I think, in effect, that federalism is important, and it is not a stable state of the world if every district attorney in every state of the union can decide to bring some kind of charges against it. Because remember, there's nothing which says that only New York uh, can sue with respect to Michael Cohen. 
Cleveland. He's a very peripatetic guy, and he's been all over the place. Do we want six or seven of these investigations going on at once? The only safe rule is that the president is immune from prosecution during office for certain things that are subject to absolute immunity um, in terms of substantive the protection survives after he leaves office, but for those things which essentially are not so protected, the immunity ends afterwards, and then you bring up the rest of the thing by getting all the evidence out in the most expeditious way it's possible. So I would essentially quit on both of these things, um, and I my guess is that you know the Supreme Court may, if it had to pick, I would guess they would pick to allow the situation to go forward in New York, because an ordinary a criminal proceeding is, generally speaking, a little bit less obnoxious than the distortion of power between two branches of government. This case sounds an awful lot like the impeachment charge against a, a Trump for not answering a congressional subpoena um, even before he had a chance to contest it in court. So I, I'm not surprised about it at all. And I think the only person who might come out the other way would be Sotomayor. Given what we just heard about the stuff on the recent cases with honest fraud statutes and so forth, I think the rest of the Supreme Court has come to the awareness uh, that uh, exuberant criminal enforcement is not necessarily in the interest of national welfare. So, final question. You knew we were going to let this go. With COVID, the court is now doing oral arguments over the telephone, which, by the way, Justice Thomas is asking questions now, that this was always his complaint, that oral arguments were too much of a free-for-all. Anyway, um, that is not material here. What is, is that during recent oral arguments, there was the audible sound of a toilet flushing. Scott, can we go to the tape on this? Laws that apply to banks. And what the FCC has said is that when the subject matter of the call ranges to the subject, <laughs> oh, no. then the call is trans. <laughs> okay, well, what you so, need to do So it. obviously, we obviously. Need that's a rook. That's a rookie mistake. I've been no, recording no, this show I think exclusively a from a bathroom that's, since that's the start. That, that should well, be used more often. Well, you should be used more often now. Why, by argument. the way, I do have a question. Why don't they use Zoom? <laughs> I, I don't know the answer. I mean, look, I that. literally went through a mock. What's the What's the average age of a justice, Richard? That exactly. may be the answer to your question. Well, no. Oh, for Zoom. Well, but it turns out, you know, whatever defects they have, they have with their life. The problem about arguing into a telephone when you're trying to read people's responses and you're deprived of all that information changes everything. So I went through a mock argument today in a case that I'm working on. I do very few. And I could stare my accusers, my judges, my moot judges in the face. And you really do want to have some visual cues as to whether or not you're barking up the right or the wrong tree um, when you're doing oral argument. I tell my students in class that they are not to go on, uh, get off pictures unless they have a transmission problem or some serious issue of one kind or another. They all understand that. Um, it is completely different. So I am, the Seventh Circuit argument will be on Zoom, and I think the Supreme Court argument should be on Zoom, and I think that we should have a constitutional <laughs> amendment that Supreme Court justices have to depart this, not this earth, but this place, either at the age of 70 or after 18 years of something of the sort. Uh, this is a case in which their welcome is worn out, and I don't want to make this on individual grounds because that would be invidious, but I think institutionally every other country in the world has that kind of shakeup, and this will stop the toilet problem. <laughs> Richard, that is, a, that is such an earnest, thoughtful analysis, which is why I'm going to go to John for the one that I really want, which is who do we think this was? Oh, God. I I'm sure I, it was whoever asked the question to which the council was replying. Uh, which everyone thinks was 
I'm not going to name names, but oh, I am. look I it am. up yourself. Do, do, you want, do you want the? I, so I am bound by no such professional scruples. So I will admit that I had my money on Justice Ginsburg for this because you just you know you regress on age and likely bladder size. But I learned <laughs> that Justice Ginsburg was actually she was in the hospital for this call, and that when she spoke, there was a recognizable hum from the hospital equipment that was not present during this. Oh, interesting. And I know this. Because Ashley Feinberg at Slate did a disturbingly detailed exegesis of this. This is like signals intelligence level, where she posits that it's Justice Breyer. And I'm I'm not kidding you. Apparently, so he was having problems with the tech anyway. And apparently you can hear him rattling dishes around about 45 minutes prior to this. So she's calculating the time between his meal. (laughs) <laughs> and the offending sound. <laughs> really? Oh. And that is that is one of her oh. core arguments. So it is. It's oh. uh, you know. It's time to well, you know, it, depends, it really depends what he was eating too. I mean, if he was eating Indian food, then forty-five minutes sounds about right. But you know, no if he God. was having Wonder Bread uh, and meatloaf, maybe it would have taken longer. Well, law talk has gone beyond its appropriate. <laughs> but my main, of, my main point, no, 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 my main point was I actually went in many, as in many ways, want to follow the lead of the Supreme Court, and so I'm planning on using this sound effect in all of my classes from now on. <laughs> Whenever I don't hear an answer, I'm going to like. I don't even have to say anything. I can press this button and just have a flush. I toilet. think in effect Thank you need somebody. To, somebody should be able to mute everybody except the talk. Well, Anyhow, Summer's you, Day hath all too short a lease yes. um, in the hopes that next time when we meet, we will be free men. Yes. Or, or we have to wait for Passover next year. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, thank you, guys. It was fun, uh, especially especially that last bit. If you were wondering when the Law Talk podcast was going to go to nine years and three months into, into our run. Oh. But thanks, thanks for listening nonetheless. Remember to rate the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with you soon. Until then, the Faculty Lounge is officially closed. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org. That was good. Good. Yeah, it was great, Thanks John. Thanks for dragging <laughs> us to new lows, a new race to the bottom, as it were. Hey, well, it's, it's news. It's news. We it, have an it, obligation. It <laughs>